big booming anthems and uh, organ that blows you against the wall and choir specials like that and big brass and and I, that's just my cup of tea personally. This was not that kind of service. This was a quiet, introspective, sober service. And my heart is so full of the goodness and presence of God. And even though it wasn't exactly my personality. You all follow what I'm saying? Am I making any sense at all? It's good to have a variety in your diet. And let God use that. Um, whatever he has. And that might be the case when it comes to the word of God this morning. Since you don't usually, my guess is, study through the book of Hosea. Maybe you do. But my guess is most could not um, just stand right where you are and give us a, an overview of the book of Hosea. If you would make your way to the book of Hosea. And as you do, by way of introduction, <clears throat> sometimes life throws us such curveballs that are so unexpected and affect us so severely, sometimes it affects us for life. We're never the same again, not necessarily in a bad way, just our lives are changed. You think of life altering news, such as the bombing of Pearl Harbor. Anyone remember the news that came across the radio of the bombing of Pearl Harbor? Raise your hand if you do. Uh, a few, a few of you do. It affected your life. My guess is it probably as a small child, most of you were, uh, maybe as a teenager, it, it was probably very scary, my guess is. I can remember the news of the assassination of President Kennedy as a first grader, and it, I was very fearful when that news came into our first grade classroom. Of course, we remember the terrorist attacks of 9-11. Life-altering news that causes us to really be stopped in our tracks. These types of events seem to come out of nowhere. And sometimes we can't understand the whys and wherefores about it. That was the situation some 2,700 years ago in the life of the prophet Hosea. And so if you would move away from our verse-by-verse -verse study in Acts and turn to the prophet Hosea, the shocking news for Hosea was that God called him to end up being married to a harlot, a local prostitute, a prophet of God, a faithful prophet of God who would end up being married to a harlot. Why? To illustrate through the picture of marital unfaithfulness how Israel had sinned against God's love. God's national people were guilty of stumbling into spiritual unfaithfulness. Stumbling into spiritual unfaithfulness. And today, I want us to evaluate our own lives. If this has happened to you, if it is happening to you, and if not, how to keep it from occurring. In the reason I wanted to go in this direction is for the last couple of weeks, I've sensed in my own life um, not being on the cutting edge like I want to be and like, frankly, I think I generally am. And that is a, with a real thirst and hunger for the things of God. And that has waned a bit 
in my life that I've picked up on in the last couple of weeks. And so instead of running away from it, I wanted to run at it and address this very important issue. And so maybe it's because of a lost situation. You don't know the Lord. You are spiritually unfaithful. Maybe you do know the Lord. And yet because of some situation, maybe something that Chuck uh, described in this song, there's been an issue in your life and, uh, and you've not run to him. You've not been singing to him. You've not been dancing uh, before him. Maybe uh, you've gone a different path and you found you find yourself relatively unfaithful to him. Hosea, first of all, in chapter one, the first thing I want us to consider is Hosea chapter one, verses one through three. How does spiritual unfaithfulness begin? Where did I fall off the beaten path? How is it that I'm no longer on that straight and narrow? Hosea chapter one, verses one through three. The word of the Lord came unto Hosea, the son of Beri, In the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, the beginning of the word um, of the Lord by Hosea. And the Lord said to Hosea, go, take unto thee a wife of harlotry and children of harlotry, for the land hath committed great harlotry, departing from the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, who conceived and bore him a son." How does spiritual unfaithfulness begin? Well, when a believer finds himself or herself uh, no longer on the cutting edge in his or her spiritual life, I believe, I'm convinced, it usually comes through complacency. Uh, You think about it in the life of a church. How is it that a, a, a church no longer has a soul winning burden? How is it that a local church no longer is really concerned and care about uh, those in their own neighborhood or visitors who might come in or, or uh, those uh, with whom or toward whom they ought to be ministering? Why does that happen in a local church? Usually it's not because of false doctrine that has come in. Usually it's not because, well, the whole congregation has have become immoral or something like that. Or maybe it's probably not even usually because there's all kinds of fighting going on and there's discord. Yes, any one of those things could be the case, but probably it is something much more subtle than that. Probably it's because of complacency. You see, Redbridge Baptist Church can remain, and I trust will remain, doctrinally pure, and that we have a high view of theology, and that we will continue to walk together in unity with one another. And yet, even in that, The fire of God can be gone from our hearts corporately. And the fire of God can be gone from your heart individually. We can just settle into a a situation of complacency and God can be long gone from our midst. The word of God describes the concept of spiritual complacency which leads to unfaithfulness as being fallow ground. And that's the situation in uh, the life of Israel at this time, as Hosea was writing. The prophet was ministering. If you'll notice in verse one, uh, it was, he's ministering to the northern kingdom primarily. That is the 10 tribes in the north. And uh, you'll, you'll see there, it says, in the days of Jeroboam. Actually, that was Jeroboam II, a few down the line in the kings of Israel. And it was during a time of 
political peace and material prosperity. Things were going pretty good, uh, outwardly speaking. I mean, the economy was good in Israel. They weren't just, they weren't battling other nations. There weren't enemies coming in. Um, things were generally okay. Uh, everything was clipping right along at a, at a pretty good uh, level. And generally speaking, uh, people were well-fed. They were cared for. They were safe. <clears throat> Yet in the midst of that, there was pronounced immorality. There was pronounced spiritual unfaithfulness. There was idolatry that was creeping in everywhere. In a, in a very real sense, they were living in the midst of fallow ground. They had settled into complacency. It was all ease. It was all taking God for granted. And we're not going to be serious about spiritual life. I know in my own life that the seasons of fallow ground that I've experienced happened because of complacency. It wasn't that I had become a theological liberal. It wasn't that I had become an infidel. It wasn't that I was having an interpersonal crisis with somebody. It was that I just could grow cold. I could become complacent toward the things of God. I could go into neutral. It's that kind of an idea. Teenagers, you're learning to drive and you know that you can coast down a hill if you put it in neutral. Well, it's that kind of an idea. And I'm just sliding further and further away. And you will as well. And Israel did. Listen, folks, don't think it can't happen to you. Don't think because you are in a a theologically sound church and you understand the word of God and that you've walked with God for so many years that all of a sudden it's automatic. It's guaranteed that God is going to be there's going to be a a fiery uh, uh, presence of God in your life all the time. That is not necessarily the case. And it might not even be the case Right now in your life, complacency is where unfaithfulness begins. This happened in Israel. In the book of Amos, Amos lived a little bit before Hosea. The righteousness of God was forsaken. That is the law of God. Whereas in Hosea, the love of God was forsaken. They had resisted the law of God and now their hearts had grown cold, had grown dull and dim and became complacent toward the love of God. They no longer thrilled with Jesus as we sang this morning. They no longer had a sense of awe and wonder of the majesty of God. Any longer they were complacent. Now, God illustrated this by his prophet, his man, marrying a woman who would go into prostitution. I don't believe in, and the, the English doesn't really uh, do justice to the, uh, the actual grammar. Uh, he didn't marry a woman who was actively a harlot any more than Israel was actively unfaithful when they came out of Egypt. They were very much committing their, their ways to, they were very much committed to the Lord because you'll remember just the night before uh, when, um, when Passover took place and the firstborn died, those who uh, painted the blood on the, the doorpost and on the, uh, uh, on the, um, the pillars, they were the ones who were protected. And so they certainly were trusting the Lord as they were led out of Egypt and, uh, and through the Red Sea. And so, uh, and then later is when they became unfaithful. <clears throat> I'm convinced that the picture here with <clears throat> his wife, Gomer is very much the same thing that when they got married, they, uh, they were very much committed to one another. At least he was to her and, uh, uh presumably she was to him as well. And then it was later on that she fell into sin after the wedding because she wanted to have her own way. She was self-willed. Fallow ground is the picture that is being painted there. What is fallow ground? It's soil that is not being used for what its purpose 
was. It's ground that is idle. And relative to a believer, fallow ground happens when the passionate flame for God in our hearts has been seared by the love for the world. You remember in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 16, it says in so many words, the, uh, the world is characterized by the, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And though a believer can't live in that, we can certainly be drawn away into that. We can certainly uh, long for that and want to set our affection on worldly issues and become spiritually complacent. Many decades ago, Vance Havner wrote, the world and the professing church first flirted with each other, then fell in love, and now the wedding is upon us. See, there was a time when the professing church would just flirt with the world and then, as it were, would move in together. And now the wedding is upon us. And he wrote that many years ago. If that was true, then how much more true is it now? Professing believers, dancing with the devil, uh, stealing and slandering and lying and lusting and, and all of the, it seems like what the world is all about. So much of the time, the church models that. And I know in my own life, as an educated, trained, experienced and committed pastor, I'm not immune from fallow ground, trying to take over the fertile soil in my heart. Did you hear that? I'm not immune from fallow ground, from from the soil of my heart becoming fallow, from me becoming complacent. And you're not immune to it either. Amen? You're not. You are just as tempted. You're just as susceptible to spiritual unfaithfulness as were the people to whom Hosea ministered. I know that in my life. And it is a scary thought to all of a sudden find yourself in neutral. It's really the theme of the major and the minor prophets. God would call his prophets to tell the people to repent and to obey as their ground in their heart had become fallow. That is generally how it begins. Now, what does it look like in my life? What does fallow ground look like? How can I identify it in my life? If there's the potential for you to either be there or going into there or sometime end up there, how will you know when it happens? Look on in chapter one, verses four through nine. And the Lord said unto him, said unto Hosea, call his name Jezreel for yet a little while. And I will avenge the blood of Jezreel upon the house of Jehu and will cause to cease the kingdom of the house of Israel. And it shall come to pass at that day that I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. And she conceived again and bore a daughter. And God said unto him, call her name Lo Ruhamah, for I will no more have mercy upon the house of Israel, but I will utterly take them away but I will have mercy upon the house of Judah and will save them by the Lord, their God, and will not save them by bow, nor by sword, uh, nor by battle, by horses, nor by horsemen. And uh, now when she had weaned uh, Lo Ruhamah, she conceived and bore a son. Then said uh, God, call his name Lo Ami, for you are not my people and I will not be your God. What does fallow ground look like? Again, The picture is being given of a wife of harlotry and children born from that. Probably what is meant by that is these were not even Hosea's children is likely the understanding. They could have been anyone's out there in society. What does it look like? First of all, 
fallow ground is hard. There's a hardness factor to it. And we see in verses four and five, when Jezreel was born, he said, uh, God told him to uh, call his name Jezreel. And the name means to be scattered, to be scattered. And because of the hardness of the soil in the hearts of the people, they were going to be scattered. Just like if you sow seed on very hard ground, very hard fallow ground, if you sow that seed in there, it's just going to scatter everywhere. It's really not going to do anything. It's just going to lie on the surface and it's not going to be uh, fruitful at all. And that's the idea here. If there is fallow ground, there's going to be a hardness there. Um, You may be stirred. You may even be warmed by a song that we've just heard from Chuck or something like that, but you are able to leave here relatively unchanged. Uh, You came here with bitterness and you heard that song and you heard him exhort you, uh, give it to Jesus, turn to him, sing to him, um, pray and and, and all the other uh, uh, admonitions that were given in that song. Yet you are able to leave here relatively unchanged because there's a hardness factor. The seed is not able to penetrate the ground, much like it has been in our soil around here for the last month, how hard it has become due to the baking of 100 degree days with no water. What about your heart? Your heart is it hardening? Are you able to be relatively unmoved and unchanged when others around you are being affected and ministered to by the Lord through His Word, through testimonies, and yet you're able to go on relatively unaffected? Maybe the seed has been scattered and it's not taking root. And then you can also know, how do you know what fallow ground looks like? It's impervious. And I've alluded to that. And in verses six and seven, low ruamite means without compassion. Because of hard heartedness toward God's, the hearts of the people of Israel were impervious to his love. And so it was hard. Therefore, uh, his love did not penetrate. It didn't matter how much seed was scattered. It didn't matter how much the prophets preached. They had pretty much, they were predisposed that they were not going to let anything sink in. And these kind of dovetailed together. Obviously, if something is hard like that, nothing else is going to be able to penetrate it. And just like uh, the, the word of God is it's we, we receive it, the washing of water by the word. Well, an impervious heart is one which the water just runs right off the surface. Jesus, the living water doesn't saturate the impervious heart. It doesn't get through. Therefore, one is left without God's mercy, without God's compassion, because it has been resisted. It has been uh, dismissed. It has been ignored. It is fallow ground. How did you get fallow ground? By being complacent, by just sitting back and not doing anything, by letting the field just be dormant for months and for years and it hardens and it's impervious. And it seems as if the only thing that's going to do anything to help is there has to be some kind of an explosion, some kind of a a nuclear uh, uh, bomb go off in your life in order to get through. Don't let that happen. Don't let it come to that. And what happened with Israel? Assyria came swamping down from the north and took them captive, captive for decades and decades. And they were prisoners. They were uh, exiled from their land. Something very significant happened. Fallow ground is hard. Fallow ground is impervious. Fallow ground is barren. Verses eight and nine. The third child was born. And this child, Loami, means not my people. Not my people. 
It had gone from being surface hardness to now being impervious. Nothing could get through to now God put them on the back burner. doesn't mean that he disowned them. It's the Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11 concept that he has put them on the back burner and for a season has sent the gospel of grace to the Gentiles. It's that kind of an idea. And folks, when God sets you aside, when he says, I'm not going to minister among you, I'm not going to relate to you as my children. That is a very serious uh, uh, word that he gives, a very serious warning. There may be lots of activity. It may look spiritual, but there isn't any fruit in a barren soil. Their sin had removed them far from him. And you know, a believer can do that. Look at Jonah. Look at Jonah. He received the word of the Lord. He heard the word of the Lord and God's call for him to go and, and uh, preach to Nineveh. And he says, I'm not going to do it. He gets on in a ship and goes exactly the other way, gets down to the bottom of the ship and, uh, and, and God sends a storm and he gets thrown overboard and he's in the belly of the whale and all the rest. And he is a believer. This is a, a prophet that God calls. And yet He can have barrenness in his life. It probably began at one point with a complacent attitude. I'm just going to sit back. I know God. He loves me. He's forgiven me. I have a home in heaven one day. So why should I sweat it? Why should I really go out of my way to give or to go or to pray or to minister? Someone else will do it. Someone else will pick up where I'm not going to. No, that's not how God deals with his children. He deals with each one of his children. He deals with me personally, individually, and he will with you as well. Is there any fallow ground? Is there a field in your heart that has not been active? If so, complacency leads to a fallow ground, ultimately unfaithfulness. Okay, you get the idea of the fallow ground. What do we do about it? How can fallow ground be broken up? What is it that we can do? What help do I have? What hope do I have? Because there is hope. As a matter of fact, there in chapter one, the very next verse, in verse 10, it says, yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. In other words, you can have a new day. And Redbridger, you can as well. Or you can head off that barren day of fallow ground if you're heading in that direction. How is it? Well, look at chapter 10, if you would. Um, Hosea chapter 10. Hosea 10 and verse 12. Hosea 10 and verse 12. See, God gave Israel and Judah a season to deal with their sin, to break up the fallow ground. Yet they resisted and discipline fell. Hosea 10 and verse 12. Sow to yourselves in righteousness, reap in mercy, break up your fallow ground for it is time to seek the Lord till he come and rain righteousness upon you. There is the potential, there is the possibility for God to send that refreshing rain. There can be a new day, but you need to to seek him. You need to plow, you need to give yourself to Uh, following him. How can fallow ground be broken up? Well, it says it right there by plowing. 
by plowing, by running that plow through that fallow ground, through that field that's hard, it's impervious, it's barren, it hasn't been worked in a long time. The first thing is there has to be a plowing and the plowing is yielding to the piercing work of God. Even right now, as God is is searching your heart and he's turning on the spotlight and he is showing you in this area or in that area, you're loving money, you're pursuing lust, you have that uh, particular item, that habit in your life that's not in my will, you're resisting following my will in this area area or that area. It's that kind of an idea. It is yielding to, see, God will do the plowing. He is going to be uh, turning over that soil in your heart. At least he's going to want to. And it is yielding to the plowing of the Lord in your heart, to those sharp edges of the plow in order that there be straight paths. Break up the fallow ground in seeking the Lord. Notice the, uh, just the opposite in verse 13. You have plowed, it's a, you know, it's the idea of you ought to be doing this in verse 12, but instead, verse 13, you have plowed wickedness. You have reaped iniquity. You have eaten the fruit of lies. In other words, you planted seeds or you allowed seeds to be planted in the soil of your heart, which were not appropriate, which were not good. You allowed these, these various things to come into your life, all kinds of evil influences and, and you pursued affections that were not godly and it ended up producing a fruit. There was, there was a, a harvest which was outside of the will of God. Why did it happen? Because you trusted in your own way. You trusted in the multitude of mighty men, that is, in the world. You pursued the things of the world instead of the things of God, is what he's saying. And because of that, there's spiritual unfaithfulness. A believer needs to lay wide open And yield to the blade of God's penetrating and piercing plow. And God will do that in the life of every one of his children. What else? Not only there needs to be a plowing, there needs to be a preparing. You see, you don't just turn the soil over and make it loose. That's not enough. If the ground has been dormant for any length of time, if there's not been good fruit, if there's not been a good uh, harvest that's been taken from there, it's been dormant, what's going to be in that field? What? Weeds, all thistles, all kinds of garbage is going to be have sprung up in there. And it isn't like you had to actively do that. Those things are just going to come up. I mean, all of a sudden that which had been dormant, that is that evil stuff, that that rotten stuff had seemingly seemingly been dormant for a long time. All of a sudden you turn around and the, the very next season it is full of that. So not only must the soil be turned over, it must be prepared by getting rid of the worldly weeds, by getting rid of those thistles, by getting rid of all of that trash that has been allowed to grow in the heart. And folks, it's not a one-time job. Any more than weeding your garden is a one-time job. I tell you, I I don't even know why I worry about flowers any longer as much as I, I enjoy them, but it's just forever. I am forever having to always be picking little weeds out here and there and they get in the strangest places and I don't even, I mean, it's almost like they have a mind of their own. And for you and for me, It's not a one-time thing. Okay, uh, 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 August 14th, 2005, I'm taking care of this today and now I'm set for heaven. Don't have to worry about it. No, it is a day in, day out struggle because the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life is going to want to attack and get into the soil of your heart. How do you prepare? Well, you repent, you confess, you acknowledge, you renounce. 
and you remove. You say, it's not, enough, it's not enough just to say, yes, I've been lusting. Yes, I've been visiting those sites on the internet that uh, God knows that, uh, that I should. And I know in my heart, and I'm not saying that by testimony at all, uh, with God as my witness, that is not something I've had in my life by his grace and for his glory. But I know that it's the, the case in scores of lives, maybe even in this congregation. Maybe that's an issue. Maybe it's the love of money. Maybe it's some pursuing some issue that you know is not what God wants in your life. Those have to be put in the trash sack and gathered up and jettisoned from your life. Yes, you turn over the soil, but you pull out. What if you just did a rototiller in your garden and it was covered full of weeds and you just turned the soil over and then you left it? Those weeds would just sprout new roots. Isn't that right? They'd just pick up and, and, and work, work it out somewhere else. You have to remove you have to prepare the soil. And then thirdly, there needs to be planting. Once the fallow ground is broken up, once the, the evil is removed, the good must be planted. Look in verse 12. Sow to yourselves or for yourselves righteousness. There, there needs to be the good seed that once again will be planted in the soil of the heart. It's the ingesting and the digesting of the word of God. It's living out the truths of scripture. It's determining to absolutely trust and obey the will of God as found in the word of God. So I ask you, do you have a heart desire to experience the reality of Isaiah 44, three? I will pour water upon him that is thirsty and floods upon the dry ground. Is that a prayer in your, in your life? God, pour that water upon the, uh, my, my thirsty soul. Flood the dry soil of my heart. I don't want it to be hard, impervious. I don't want it to be barren. I do want it to be broken up so that it will be ready to be planted. Revive us again that thy people may rejoice in thee. Psalm 85 and verse 6 tells us, is that your heart's desire? Look at chapter six and verse one, and we're done. Hosea six and verse one. And here's an admonition. The prophet is saying, don't let it be this way. I can hear him saying this to his, his uh, unfaithful wife, a uh, relative to the marriage. And he is saying it to the people relative to their spiritual unfaithfulness. Uh, Hosea six and verse one, come and let us return unto the Lord for he hath torn, but he will hear us. He heal us. He hath smitten, but he will bind us up. God is long suffering. His mercies do endure forever. You can have them. You can experience them as you turn to him. And I'm so thankful that uh, I, the Lord grabbed a hold of my heart in the last week or two and uh, through, through a, a sense of leanness of soul, through conviction, through a, a sense of, uh, of lack of freshness, I guess. Just a, a sense of fallow ground. There isn't, there isn't a, a refreshing amount of you know, uh, fruit. You know, it's like that, that garden ripe tomato where you, you take it off the vine, you wash it off, maybe put it in the refrigerator for a little bit. And boy, is, isn't it just delicious? I just love that. By the way, you all are free to bring me any of your tomatoes that you're growing right now. I really do. I mean, I say that by way of illustration. It really is refreshing. Well, it hadn't been like that for me for a few days. I don't know, a couple of weeks, three weeks. I, don't, I really don't know exactly where, you know, where to uh, place the timing of it. 
but it was made very real to me. Maybe today, God has allowed you to come to the awareness that there's a complacency. And you know it, likely. You, you probably have a good idea if that's the case. Maybe it is so stagnant. Maybe the field is so dormant that there are all kinds of weeds that are present. And you already know that they're there. And you're aware of it. And God is pricking your heart. And he is saying, as he did in chapter 6 and verse 1, come, return. God did tear. He's, he's maybe tearing right now. He's ripping and convicting and gripping your soul. But God is just as quick to heal. He did smite you or traumatize you. But he will bind you up if you'll but turn to him. What a message in Hosea. What an incredible. Only God would have thought of something like this. To have allowed one of his prophets to have gone through the trauma of ending up being married to a woman of the world notorious woman of the world with three illegitimate children so that we might see this illustration now of the need to not be complacent, not be dormant, but to have a fresh, uh, ready-to-receive type of soil in our hearts. Lord, I'm thankful for your word and how it has reminded me